Everyone wants to save the whales. My next guest has actually saved them. He's developed new ways of tracking marine mammals, worked with the Navy and others to reduce noise damage, and even discovered a whole new whale species. He's a senior scientist at the National Marine Fisheries Service, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Dr. Jay Barlow joins me now. Dr. Barlow, good to have you on. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I don't know quite where to begin here, but give us a general sense of what your activities are with respect to these marine mammals and NOAA, and how are we doing worldwide with protecting these large mammals? Well, we're doing a much better job in the United States than we are worldwide. Fortunately for us and for the marine mammals, in 1972, we passed the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, and this was in response to the decimation of of the large whales by commercial whaling, including the U.S. We were a whaling nation. And also the bycatch of dolphins and tuna nets. So there is this massive bycatch problem in the eastern tropical Pacific where we were getting most of our tuna. So the uh, America was up in arms. They wanted some action. And unanimously, with support from both parties, um, they passed the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And because of that, NOAA, my agency, has been put in charge of um, assessing human impacts on the cetaceans, whales, dolphins, as well as the seals and sea lions in the U.S. waters. And besides human activity of the nature you described, there's also, and I've seen this over the years, Navy activity, testing sonar that has a huge amount of energy sent low into the water and ordnance testing. And these shock waves, I guess, can harm the mammals also. Yeah. Over the time I've been employed by NOAA, which is now 40 years, um, our mission has changed quite a bit. It used to be focused mostly on those direct effects um, like harvesting um, and unintentional harvesting as bycatch in fisheries. But recently, the other human impacts have been more important, and we've just learned new ways to study marine mammals and their impacts. So you mentioned uh, Navy sonar. We know that's a problem for some species of beaked whale and other whales. We know that climate change is going to be a big force for uh, affecting the, the marine mammal populations within our U.S. waters. And ship strikes are an increasing problem because ship traffic has uh, gone up and uh, the speed of ships has gone up. So there, there are new, new challenges. But as I said, overall in the U.S., the, because we've been able to track most of the marine mammal populations, we know that most of them are doing pretty well. Either they're maintaining their own or uh, growing and still recovering from the effects of whaling. And describe some of the activities you do to aid in this research so you know what's going on with the populations. You must spend a lot of time out on ships. Yeah, so uh, NOAA has these great big white research vessels, and we've been able to get time on those. And one of the things we want to do is to monitor changes in abundance, because one of the best ways to figure out what's going on is to monitor the populations over time. So we do historically what we've been calling visual sighting surveys, where we put expert marine mammal observers on the flying bridge of these decks and while they're driving around and doing their research. And we've developed um, some pretty sophisticated statistical methods to estimate the density and then the abundance of the marine mammals from these visual sighting surveys. But recently, um, the thing that I've been working on mostly in the last decade is methods to survey them more effectively using the sounds they make. So rather than relying on them coming up to the surface in order to breathe and then being counted, we can actually detect them acoustically from the sounds that they make 
And then we've uh, been developing new methods to estimate their abundance using these, uh, these sound methods. I've been convinced that birds speak to one another. And it's true of marine mammals, too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. They, uh, they communicate a lot of information acoustically. And they also, some of them, use echolocation like bats. And so they couldn't feed without this, this uh, acoustic tool. So they produce sounds, wait for the echoes to come back, and uh, find out where their prey is. We're speaking with Dr. Jay Barlow. He's a senior scientist at the National Marine Fisheries Service, part of NOAA, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And tell us about the time you discovered a whole new species of a certain type of whale. Yeah, that was just last November. We were on an expedition to try to uh, nail down... um, what sounds are made by a different species of beaked whale. So we had these sounds that we recorded on a previous survey, and we knew that we, we are going to an area of high density of this particular type of sound. And so we thought, well, maybe we can find out what's making that sound. But what we found was in something entirely different. Um, one early dawn, very calm conditions, a group of three beaked whales just surfaced right next to our research vessel. And uh, they came up, they, they, we put a, some recording equipment in the water, and they came and inspected that. They came over to our vessel. We got hundreds and hundreds of photographs of them. And they really didn't match anything that was previously described. The animal we were looking for has uh, only two teeth, or like tusks, at the very tip of the jaw. And this had two teeth at mid-jaw position in the adult males. And so that was different. And uh, the belly was lighter than any of the uh, previously described beaked whales. So we think we got something new here. And then we put the acoustic recording equipment in the water, and we didn't hear anything right away, which is kind of common with these beaked whale species because they don't start to make sounds until they're 500 meters deep. Um, But um, then later, a couple of hours later, we started receiving uh, signals from these whales, and the signals were also novel. They're not signals that we had previously um, described or anybody else has previously described. So we think it's very likely that this is something that's uh, either brand new to science or is a Um, a geographic variation, so sort of a subspecies of an existing species that no one's described before. And have you personally been in the water, say with scuba gear, and encountered whales close up? I have skin diving, but that's not a usual method for our research. The deal is that they're a lot faster than us, and you just get a momentary glimpse. The time that I uh, actually was able to spend some time in the water with the, 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 the cetaceans was I was doing some research near Malpelo Island off the coast of Colombia, and I started feeling these vibrations in my body. I was being inspected by something, something pretty big. I turned around, and in the dim lurking murk, I saw these false killer whales approaching me. These are giant dolphins about 14 feet long. They eat some other dolphins, so they're they're pretty rough characters, and uh, so I felt uh, a little bit nervous about that that encounter. But uh, you know, that's not how we normally study them, and yeah. uh, I I wouldn't recommend that. You don't want them to say, "Hey, I've never tried one of these before," and they're talking about you, I <laughs> no. guess. And just briefly, you've been at NOAA, you said, 40 years. How did you get into this work, and what sustains you long-term doing this? Well, I like to say I fell in with the wrong crowd, but uh, I was actually really, really lucky. So I was in graduate school at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where I got my Ph.D., and uh, I started um, 
meeting and working with some people at the National Marine Fisheries Service laboratory there that was actually on our campus right there in La Jolla, California. And they were working on some very interesting applied problems. I wasn't so much a a pure theoretical biologist. I wanted to work on stuff that mattered to other people. And they were doing these really interesting studies of dolphins in the eastern tropical Pacific and trying to assess human impacts on them and uh, try to figure ways to keep them out of the nets. And uh, that sounded great to me. So I um, signed up with them um, first as a postdoc in in 81 and then uh, later as a full-time employee and have been working at the same laboratory in La Jolla ever since. Yeah, I guess these creatures are sentient and that knowledge can really keep you going for a lifetime, can't it? Yeah, they're they're inspiring animals to work with, and there's no shortage of conservation problems. A lot of that conservation, a lot of those conservation problems has shifted. So rather than just being a U.S. problem or just being a European problem where, where it was first recognized, it's a worldwide problem now. And so we're working on using ways to spread the knowledge that we get throughout the world. So what we develop in the U.S. government has application around the world in terms of assessing abundance and trends in marine mammal populations. And so what we're trying to do is uh, is to educate the entire world on uh, what we are doing and what can be done to help save these uh, important animals. Dr. Jay Barlow is a senior scientist at the National Marine Fisheries Service, part of NOAA, and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And 
you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. 
uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.